0: So, thank you for, for coming to this workshop. And this workshop, we're going to be uh, thinking about a particular objection that maybe you've heard or a question that you yourself have wrestled with in thinking about Christianity. And that's uh, the question of how could a good God send people to hell? And there's different ways that question might be phrased. You know, why can't God just forgive everyone? Uh, isn't God a God of love? How could you believe that that someone who lives a good life uh, would still go to hell when they die? These kinds of questions. And so I want to try to think through this in this workshop here together. I wanna begin by thinking about what we mean when we talk about hell. Um, There's different uh, teachings that people who have claimed to be Christian have taught about what happens to people after death. Uh, a couple that uh, are still around and are taught in different ways uh, are, are called universalism. And there's two kinds of universalism. Universalism is the idea that in the end, everyone will be in heaven. Everyone gets saved in the end. Uh, there is, uh, there's another workshop talking about exclusivity versus plurality. Uh, exclusivity is really the idea that only Christianity is true. Inclusivity is the belief that really all religions teach the same thing. So there are universal inclusivists. There are people who say everyone's going to get saved and it will be within their own belief system. Uh, Universal exclusivists say everyone will get saved through believing in Jesus. And how does that work? Well, usually for those people, it's after death, people get a second chance to believe in Jesus. And in the end, everyone will come to saving faith in Christ. I believe that was Rob Bell's position. I'm not sure where he would be now, uh, but that's a pastor up the west side of the state of Michigan in his book Love Wins from a few years back. Uh, That's kind of his position. Eventually, in the end, everyone gets into heaven uh, because eventually they put faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, A man named John Stott, you may have some familiarity with, Uh, he taught a position. That's called annihilationism. He's not the only one who's taught it. A few people in church history have taught it. And that, that belief is that those who do not trust in Jesus Christ after death, they will cease to be, they'll cease to exist. They will be annihilated and they will no longer exist. I think all of those are not biblical teachings. They're not traditional Christian teachings. The traditional Christian teaching about hell is that those who have not uh, trusted in Jesus Christ, those who have not called on him, those who have not been united to Jesus Christ and enjoyed the benefits of salvation, that they, for all eternity, will suffer eternal conscious torment in a place called hell, uh, eternally separated from God. And even saying that, might cause some of you to, to kind of begin to feel a little uncomfortable because we tend to struggle with the doctrine of hell. We, we tend to, to struggle with it. And, and, and why do we struggle with it? Well, perhaps it seems unfair to us. Perhaps it seems unfair in some way to, to have an eternal kind of torment, or it seems uh, un, unnecessarily harsh. Often we struggle with it because we have friends we have family members who have rejected Jesus Christ. And if hell is real, that means that's where they're going to go. Or maybe even loved ones who have already died having rejected Christ. And the thought of them being in hell is a a hard thought. And so we struggle with the idea of hell. I want to then begin by asking, well, why do Christians believe in it? If this is a a harder doctrine for us to believe, why do we have it? And I think it's important to to realize it's not as though as Christians got together and said, let's see if we can find a doctrine that's going to make it so that people who disagree with us have a really bad end. That's not how hell was, was developed. We believe it. The short answer is because the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches us. And in particular, Jesus Christ taught us. Some have noted that, that probably Jesus is the one who talks about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Just a few examples of this. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it. Let's we'll look at a few examples from the book of Matthew. I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who is able to cast soul and body into hell. Go over to chapter 13 of Matthew. Chapter 13 and verse 40. So it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. While the righteous shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Start in verse 41. Depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then down in verse 46, those on the left shall go away into eternal punishment. And so this is where we see we don't have everyone getting into heaven, we don't have those who do not know Christ ceasing to exist. Jesus says they're going to eternal punishment, to eternal. Fire. And so, why do we believe hell? Because God told us there's a hell. God told us this is what happens. And so, we have to believe it. But is there any value in believing in hell? Sometimes we, we almost think that hell is, is simply a negative. And then we will talk a little bit more about how to talk to others about hell, but I want to, to give a few reasons why we need hell. Why is hell actually a good teaching in some ways in scripture? And the first is that hell helps us to see that God is the judge. One of the reasons we struggle with the teaching of hell is we don't like to think of God as the judge. We really like to think of God as the forgiver. And why is that the case? And the answer is because our culture loves forgiveness. Our culture loves second chances. Our culture reads Jesus saying, when someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other. And our culture says, man, I love that Jesus guy. Our culture hears the Bible say, forgive your enemies. They say, man, that's the Bible, so right. You go to a lot of other cultures around the world today, you to a lot of other cultures in history, and they said that you say, are you crazy? Love your enemies? turn the other cheek. You know what? I want a God who's going to punish these people who have done this evil. I don't want a God who's going to forgive them. I need a God who's going to judge them. And so if we say we don't want a hell, in a sense, we're saying our culture beliefs are the best. They're better than other cultures. We're, We're latching on to parts of scripture that we like And other parts of scripture that don't line up quite as well. And part of the reason we need God to be a judge is because God's judgment brings a resolution to evil. In in the last general session, we talked about this. There's a problem of evil. In a sense, what is the answer to evil? And the answer is what God will eventually do. And if there is no hell, there's no answer. There's now no reason, there's no purpose. evil. And so hell actually helps us to see there is a resolution to evil, that God ultimately will judge in the end. And because that is true, it actually leads us not to be as violent as we otherwise would. And this, this might seem counterintuitive to us, because often in our culture, we think, Well, you believe in hell, that makes you a hateful, unloving person. But if there was no hell, and you have been wronged, what are you going to do? You're gonna seek justice. What else are you gonna do? Not just justice, vengeance. You took my eye, I'm taking both of yours. You hurt me 5%, I'm going to hurt you at least 7. We want to do more. And how will we not do that? Well, what does Romans 12 say? Romans 12, verse 19 says this. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Our culture loves verse 20, right? Feed your enemy. Give your enemy something to drink. But we know, when you have a real enemy, you don't want to do that. It's easy for us on some level to, to say, hey, it's great to be kind to your enemies because we don't have real enemies most of the time. When you have real enemies and you're being told, feed them, give them drink, and you're saying, no, no, no. Someone needs to make them pay. The only way you cannot make them pay is if you know God will make them pay. I don't have to take revenge. I don't have to be the judge. Because God is theologian, Miroslav Wolf says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. My thesis, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many in the West. But, It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence can result from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. It's very easy to say, hey, don't take revenge for yourself if you've never really been wrong. When you've been wronged, you know what you want to know? Justice is going to be done. And God, being the judge, helps us to know justice will be done, and so I don't have to do it. But we still might wrestle a little bit with how does this fit with God being loving? If he's a good God, how can he be angry at sin? How does God's wrath match up with his mercy and his love and his kindness? Well, first, I think it's important for us to realize that if God is loving, he has to be angry. You know, the opposite of of anger is not love. The opposite of anger is apathy. When you're angry, what are you saying? This matters. I care about this. If you don't care about it, do you get angry? No. I was talking to people at lunch today about the uh, perfectly just Lions-Cowboys finish uh, a couple weekends ago. (laughs) Right? And a lot of people were upset at how that ended. Why? Because they cared about the game. If you're sitting here and you're like, oh, the Lions and Cowboys played? You know what you also don't care about? How the game ended. (laughs) Your your blood pressure did not rise at all, right? Because you were indifferent. You didn't care. If you do love, you get angry at the things that harm and threaten what you love. You get angry at the bullies, at the diseases and sicknesses that might harm those you love. You even get angry at the decisions that someone might be making that's harming themselves. The person who's who's become addicted to drugs or alcohol, the person who's over constantly lazy and 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 not not doing anything to make anything of their life. You don't look at that and say, "Well, that's no big deal." You get upset at it. Because it's harming someone you care about. And because God loves his world, because God loves the people he has made, he has to be angry at sin. He has to be angry at that which threatens his world. But how does a God of love match up with the idea of hell? Well, first of all, we have to realize God has demonstrated his love in a whole host of ways. God demonstrated his love to us in creating us when he didn't have to. God demonstrated his love to us in giving us a knowledge of him through creation, as Pastor Ken talked about, that we know God. That's an act of his love, that we all know God. That he made us in his image so that we could know him. That his law is written in our hearts, so we would know what is right and we would know what is wrong. And he loved us by sending his son to die for the sins of mankind. And he also loved us. By warning us about hell. By telling us there is judgment. And he told us that not just in the Bible. He did tell us that in the Bible. But you know what Romans 1 tells us? Romans 1 not only says that we know God. To get to the end, you know what else it says? That those who know that God will judge these things not only participate in them, but approve of those who do. So even those who don't have the Bible, you know what they know? God's the judge, and he's going to judge sin. So God has loved us by revealing all of those things to us. And yet his love can never be separated from the rest of his character. That God's love is a holy love. It is a righteous love. It is a wise love. And so when he acts in love, he always acts within his holiness, righteousness, and wisdom. And hell is included in that. It is a manifestation of his holiness, righteousness, wisdom, and love. Perhaps the biggest struggle we have is in thinking about how it is fair or just for someone to spend an eternity in hell for a lifetime of sin. I mean, how is that possibly just? Or sometimes it's even phrased as, so someone's going to go to hell just because they didn't pray to Jesus? How is that just? So what should we think about that, let's begin with that last part. Is anyone in hell because they did not pray to Jesus? I think the answer from the Bible is not really. That that when you are condemned, there are some who will be condemned for not believing the message about Jesus. But they're ultimately condemned for rejecting the truth about God that they know. Romans 1 doesn't just tell us they know God, it also says they suppress this truth. And so no one who stands before God could say, God, if I had known more, it would have been okay. Because God has given them enough so that they can either respond in obedient faith or they can respond in rejection of him. And so everyone who who goes to hell will be there because of their rejection of God and his truth. And that means at one level that those who are in hell have chosen to be there. Let's think about exactly how this works. If anyone who's in hell, would they want to be in hell? And the answer is no, they don't want to be in hell. But you know where else they don't want to be? In heaven. Because what's heaven? Heaven's not just a place of goodness and love and happiness. Heaven is God's dwelling. And they don't want to be with God. And you know what they get in hell? Not being with God. They have said, God, I do not want you. God, I have rejected you. And he has given them that reality. That for all eternity, they do not experience the goodness of God's presence. They experience the horrors of his back. But as well, we have to understand that that the sin against God cannot be measured by, by saying it's just done in one lifetime. Because sin against God is sin against an infinite being. And the seriousness of your sin, in many ways, is tied to the seriousness of the one you are offending. You might look at me and think, you know what, Ben? I'm not sure I really like you. I wish you were dead. And in fact, I'm going to write you a threatening letter that will tell you I am going to try to kill you. Now, you might get in trouble for that. Probably wouldn't, actually. Why? Because no one really cares about me. If you wrote that letter to Governor Whitner, might there be different consequences? Yeah, probably. If you wrote that to President Biden, might there be different consequences? Yeah. Because the seriousness of the offense goes up depending upon who the offense is against. You, You break your company policy, it's a little different than breaking federal law. So when we sin... Who are we offending? The greatest being. An infinitely great being. What's the penalty for that kind of an offense? The answer is, I-, I couldn't tell you by myself. Only that infinitely great being could really tell you how that offense needs to be paid for. And how did he say it needs to be paid for? It was an infinite punishment. That in a sense, there is no other way that an infinite being, sin against an infinite being, requires an infinite punishment. There's something else that I found very helpful as well in thinking about this issue. That no one is suffering in hell for merely a lifetime of sin. Because everyone in hell is continuing to sin. And hell is full, not of repentant sinners, but of un repentant sinners. This was related I said earlier. They don't want to be in hell, but they don't want God still. They still don't want to give up their sin. I want to look at two passages that point to this. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 9 so you can see this there as well. In Revelation 9, we have God pouring out his wrath on the world. He is exercising his judgment on the sins of mankind. And how do they respond? Revelation 9 and verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So they did not respond respond with repentance. They responded with continual sinning, with continual hatred of God. I think we see this as well in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I want you to turn there, but just think with me about this story. The rich man goes to hell, and what's the first thing he says when he gets there? What have I done? No, he doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? Help me. <laughs> Relieve my pain. Relieve my suffering. I'm in torment. And he treats Lazarus as his errand boy. right? Hey, Father Abraham, could you send Lazarus to take care of me here? He doesn't look at Lazarus and say, I can't believe that I ignored you at my gates all this time. How cold and heartless of me. Now he says, oh, could you, could you come do something for me here? And he never shows any kind of repentance. Now there's one aspect that you might think, well, maybe there's some level of, of, of compassion he shows, right? Because he says, well, could you have Lazarus do something else for me? right? <laughs> could you have him go and tell my brothers so they don't end up here? Now, is that actually like compassion or love? Well, Jesus tells us unbelievers love their families. He says, if you love those who love you, you're no different than anyone else. So I don't think there's any kind of indication in the fact that he's caring for his brothers that would show any kind of repentance on his part. I think that becomes very clear because how does he respond when Abraham says back to him, right? Abraham says to him, they're not gonna believe. Because they have the law and the prophets, they have the Bible. If they don't believe the Bible, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. What does the rich man say, oh, you're right? No, no, he says, no, no, you're wrong, Abraham. Because they would believe if someone came back from the dead. And what does that also imply? I would have believed if that happened. God, you didn't give me enough. I'm here not because of what I've done, but you somehow failed me, God. And so he's consistently living out his rebellion against God. He's not responding and saying, you're right, I should have believed what God already said. Instead, he's continuing to justify himself. He's continuing to say, God, you and your word are wrong. And people throughout all eternity are continuing to build up their sin against God. So if all this is true, how should we talk about hell? And and I want to first say that we we should certainly not do so flippantly or carelessly. I, I, I don't think it's something that really we should joke about because it is a very serious thing. And as well, I I think we should not do so callously. And by callously, I'll give the example of the people who stand on a street corner with a sign that says, you know, you're going to hell. Is that true? Probably for most of the people, yes. Is that person demonstrating any kind of concern for them? I don't think anyone in our culture sees those people and says, you know what, they really care for my soul. I think that tends to portray a kind of self-righteous spirit. You're going to hell, not me. I don't think that's at all what scripture would call us to do. But the flip side of that is is not to say let's not talk about hell. The flip side of that is we have to. There's a story of in in the past a member of the royal family in England, after a church service going up to the the dean of that cathedral and asking, is it true, Dean, that there is a place called hell? The Dean stopped and and thought, well, the scriptures say so, and Christian people have always believed so, and the Church of England confesses so. To which she, she responded, then why do you not tell us so? In one sense, if you believe there is a hell, you cannot avoid warning people about it. So we have to talk. We can't hide it. We have to be willing to talk to those who are headed to hell to warn them. And so how do we then talk about it? I think one way to talk about hell is to tie it to our longing for justice. That there is something in us that wants justice done. Especially when we believe we have experienced injustice. So the injustice might be the referee blowing the call for your favorite team. It might be a teacher unfairly grading your assignment. It might be your boss taking credit for something that you actually did. Or it could be more serious in which someone has abused you or someone that you love and they're still walking around free. And in this life, justice is not always done we have a court system which is designed to administer justice, and yet it does not always get it right. But there are injustices in this world. And so we have to stop and ask, will our longing for justice ever be satisfied? The answer is yes. That because God is the judge, that one day all sin will be paid for. And here's our tension. Our tension is we we tend to want justice for those who have wronged us. But when we've wronged someone else, what do we want? Mercy. And here's here's the wonderful truth. God offers both, right? There is justice done. Every sin will be paid for, either by that person paying for the sin for all eternity. Or, in God's mercy, Jesus Christ paying for that sin through his infinite sacrificial death. We want justice. There will be justice. And, good news, there's also mercy. So we can talk about both of those things. I think as well, we might consider what happens if there is no hell. If you stop believing in hell, is the world better off? Some of you might know the song by John Lennon, Imagine. Imagine there's no hell, right? No heaven above, no hell below. And the idea of the song is, well, then the world would be great if that were true, right? And yet, there have been people who stopped believing in hell. Richard Wurmbrand was a pastor who was tortured during the Soviet regime in Russia. And he said this, the cruelty of atheism is hard to believe. When man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil, there is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depths of evil which is in man. The communist torturers often said, there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. I've heard one torturer even say, I thank God in whom I don't believe. That I have lived to this hour when I can express all the evil in my heart. And he expressed it an unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on prisoners. That in this world, crime does sometimes pay. That in this world, the good die young, while evil men live long and prosperous lives. That in this world, elderly people are robbed out of their retirement savings through deceptive schemes, while those who devise those schemes enjoy their ill-gotten gain. In this world, innocent people are sexually abused, often for years, where their abusers remain respected and free in the community. Then, in this world, people go on shooting sprees in schools, they set off bombs in public places, they commit genocide, and without hell, many of these people would get away with their crimes. And the cries for justice would go unanswered. But there is a hell. Which means our cries for justice are answered. And so as we talk to people, we can help them to see, in that sense, the goodness of this truth. As well as we talk about hell, I think we need to be willing to challenge people and their belief that they have the right to judge God they have the right to say, God, it is wrong for you to send anyone to hell. Because we're not in that position. He's not judged by us. We are judged by him. And and we can't lose sight of that fact. I think we need to be careful not to treat other people as if they get to stand over God's word and over Christianity and say, well, what do you think? If this is appealing enough to you, will you believe it? Instead of saying, you've got to repent and put yourself under what God has said. Related to that, that if Christianity is true, you know what also is going to be true? That there are going to be certain teachings and beliefs that are hard for us to accept. Because... If all of our beliefs are easy for us to accept and believe, what have we probably done? Made a God in our own image. This God thinks exactly like I do. Well, maybe that's because the God is only in your head. If there actually is a God, he actually has created the world. And we're not him then probably there are some places in which we may not agree with what he has said. And that actually helps us to know we didn't make up this religion. And we aren't just believing what our culture says. So in general, I think what, what you need to do whenever you find something that God's word says that doesn't quite match up with what you want to believe Make sure it's what the Bible really says. And if the Bible says it, and you realize my culture is agreeing with me, that's the places where you've got to be especially intensive in denying your culture and believing what the Bible says. Because I've heard it this way, and this is very helpful for me, hopefully helpful for you too. Think about five years ago. Are there things that you thought five years ago that today you're kind of embarrassed that you thought that? Maybe 10 years ago even? What do you think is going to be true 10 years from now? about 20 years from now? What we think about our culture in the past. We look back 100 years. And we look at what some of the people believed at that time and we think, man, how could anyone think that? That's crazy. That's going to be true 100 years from now? You're going to look back at us and be like, how could anyone think that? That's crazy. So you want to guarantee you're going to be wrong in some of your beliefs? Believe everything that your culture says. You want to avoid that error? Lean hard into what God has said. Especially when it's pushing back against your culture. But then as well, as we talk about hell, always remember and always point out that Jesus suffered God's wrath so you would not have to. Yes, I think it is especially hard when you think about those who now have no chance. That's very hard. And I think ultimately we're left with saying what Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? But for those who are living, we have an opportunity to warn them. We have a chance to say, this is what is coming. And you might think, I don't want God, but I can tell you, you don't want hell. And so let's take advantage of that now. Because you don't have to go. God made a way. See, what are the people who didn't hear? That's not you, though. You're having a chance to hear. So the question isn't, what have other people done? And how has God treated them? The question is, what will you do with what God has warned you about? And as Christians, ultimately, when we get to eternity, there is a sense in which even hell itself will be a means for us to see God's righteousness and justice. Turn with you, if you have your Bible, to Revelation 15. Revelation 15. Here is as God is bringing his plan to an end, as he's demonstrating his judgment on the earth, we find believers saying this, Romans 15, 4, Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. That I believe when we are able to see what God has been doing, From his perspective, we will say, it was all righteous. It was all just. And therefore we glorify and fear his name. Right now, we may not understand and see that. That's because we can't see it from God's perspective. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-wise. He is. And so even his act in punishing those who have rejected him in hell will be a means for us to see his justice carried out.